Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Bronson Arroyo. Bronson, of course, is a 15-year Major League veteran, a former All-Star, and a World Series winner with the 2004 Red Sox. He's currently in Reds camp trying to pitch again in the majors for the first time since 2014. Bronson, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the top. I always ask people what got them into baseball in the first place. What got you into baseball as a game, and what got you playing it when you were a kid? Oh, I was living down in the Keys at the time. I was living on Big Pine Key, and uh, my father really wasn't a baseball guy, so he had played football and basketball growing up. And uh, I don't know where I got the idea about playing t-ball, but I remember having the conversation, and they were like, are you sure you want to play? And I said, yeah, I think I want to play t-ball for some reason. And uh that initially was got, got me into the game, and after my father saw kind of my athletic ability, just by nature was a kind of head and shoulders above the other kids. I think that kind of light bulb turned off in his head about, um, or turned on, uh, that I think, you know, maybe we got something special here. You were drafted out of high school in the third round by the Pirates. At what point did you realize that playing baseball professionally was actually something that was in the cards for you? Well, it's, it's hard to say when you knew it was a reality, you know, by your senior year in high school, you definitely see a lot of radar guns behind home plate and you, you realize that you're being scouted and you know that professional baseball, at least at the minor league level, is going to be an opportunity. But for me, I had grown up in the weight room and uh, kind of trained as a, as a major league baseball player from a very young age, from about six on after I started playing t-ball. And, and so I, I had been taking supplements and lifting really heavy weight and, and I kind of lived a lifestyle as a professional athlete a long time. So in my mind, even if it was just imagination, I mean, by the time I was definitely eight years old, I mean, I, I thought, I mean, I would verbally say, I'm going to blame the league. And, and, and I knew it wasn't purely fiction just because of what we were doing in the weight room. And I could see kind of the template that we were putting down. What were you throwing in high school? What types of pitches were you throwing then? In high school, I was, I threw a four seam fastball. I threw a sinker as I do now. And that's the two seam fastball. And I threw a curveball, uh, and rarely ever threw a changeup. I might have thrown a handful of changeups in those years, but your your velocity was enough, and you were dominant enough over those types of players that you really didn't have to be as creative as you had to, obviously, later on in your career. Were the pitches you were throwing then? Were you using? Did you end up using the same grips? Are those still the same pitches that you threw today that you were throwing throughout your major league career? The four seam fastball is the same grip, and everything else has changed. So the the two seam fastball I actually picked up Mike Leak around two thousand and ten. That's where I made kind of the shift on the on the two seam grip and I made a shift on my grip my curveball about nineteen ninety nine or two thousand playing with a, a left hander named Scott Sauerbeck who had the best curveball I'd ever seen and, and the grips on the on these pitches didn't necessarily change the way that people would view my pitch coming in, but it made it a little easier for me to be consistent with the movement. So in the past, sometimes I would have a good sinker or a good curveball, and other days it wasn't there. Or when I changed and manipulated these grips, it became more consistent. When did you develop the leg kick? The leg kick came early on, even though I didn't realize it, because I, I wasn't watching myself back on film, obviously, in the 80s and in the 90s. But I took to the rookie league, so I really realized how different my leg kick was. But that, that was more out of uh, emulating Dwight Gooden in the mid eighties, he was a household name in 85, 86 with the Mets. My parents were Mets fans. And so that's what my seven and eight year old mind created out of trying to copy him. 
I like to ask people about their expectations at different points because expectations change. But as a guy that's drafted out of high school who is picked in the third round, at this point as an 18, 19-year-old kid, what were your expectations of what being a major league pitcher would be like and how were they different from reality? My expectations at the time, I can remember, I still to this day have, have my, my senior year um, uh, you know, alumni book, and, and I'd written in there, it asked for goals or something. I'd written in there, hopefully 10 years from now, I'll be a frontline major league pitcher. And and um, I, I don't think I thought too much other than that. I didn't think about the lifestyle. I didn't think about how much money I'd be making. I didn't think about um, how much weight I would have gained or would I have thrown harder. I didn't really think about those things. I just thought about competing, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that I think I can get to that level based on what I'm viewing around me as people who have played against me over the years and people who are being drafted and people that I have now seen in the minor leagues a little bit, and they're ascending to the major league level. I, I felt like I could play there, but I, I, didn't, I don't think I had a, a very uh, definitive or, or descriptive view of what it would be like to actually be a major league player. I didn't think about it on that level. I just thought about ascending the ladder you were in the minors, you did go right up the ladder. You started in rookie ball, then you went to A ball, high A, double A, triple A. You had basically a year at each level. You were in the minors for almost five years before you made your professional, your major league debut, rather. Tell me about just sort of going through the minors and what you're working on in the minors to try and get there. And I imagine it takes a lot of patience because obviously your goal is to pitch in the majors. And when you're in the minors and you're struggling at times, tell me about just sort of that experience and working your way through. It was actually a, a, a pretty fun experience. I think you never really knew what you were going to get. And, and I, I went into the rookie league being drafted. I, I felt like there was a there was a section of guys who were drafted that were uber cocky that thought they would just zoom right to the big leagues. And then there was some guys who were really insecure that weren't sure. And I felt like I landed in the middle there where I was I was very confident about my abilities in the world, but I wasn't sure where they would actually stack up compared to other guys. But I just knew that I, inside I felt I was good, but I was humble about it. And and um, so as I started ascending in the minor league, there was these these slow light bulbs were going off. You know, my first year in 1996, they sent me to A-ball, uh, full season A. I kind of skipped the short season A. And and when I got there, after our first road trip, we came back, and, and one of the pitchers got released. And I, I thought the 25 guys that we broke camp with were going to be the 25 guys that were on your team the whole season. I figured this was like a high school team. We made the team. We're going to be playing 142 games in this uniform. And then they said, Oh no, man, some guys are going to go up to the next level. Some guys are going to go down. Some guys are going to get released. And by the end of that year, there was only five of us left on that team that had played there the whole season. And that was, that was a big moment for me. Cause I didn't realize that the, the business of baseball worked in this way. And so, um, you know, as I was ascending, I went, I went able, I had a great season. I had a great first half, struggled a bit in the second half, go to high A the next year in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I'm really kind of getting my roots about me. I'm figuring out how I'm going to pitch at the professional level and how I'm going to, beat people and and uh i went 12 and 4 that year we won the championship i you know i probably had the one of the high lowest eras in the league that year led the league if not close in wins and, and i'm and i'm now starting to get some 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 confidence about yeah i i know i'm i'm affirming now that that my abilities um in this game are, are going to get me i think to the big leagues and so then i played double a and, and i struggled a little bit that first year in double a i went nine and eight i still had a winning record but i i, I had a, a uh, mediocre second half, and so then I kind of hit the reset button a little bit. I figured it out the next year, went back to Double A, and ended up being 15 and four. Ended that season in Triple A, and then from then on, I, I felt like I was coming into my own. I was figuring out exactly how I was going to try to manage the major league level when I got there. 
And then, you know, once you get to the big league level, it, that in itself was a whole other ball game to try to figure out. You made your debut, your major league debut on June 12, 2000 with the Pirates. Tell me about that day and that moment for you. Yeah, there was actually I've had one of the strangest debuts of anybody who's ever played the game. I, I get uh, I'm in Colorado Springs. I'm supposed to pitch. I don't um, know what day of the week it was. But I remember I came into the stadium and Richie Hebner, a longtime Pittsburgh Pirate, was the manager at the time because my my manager from earlier in the year, Trent Jewett, had gotten called up to coach third base mid-season because the Pirates had fired first and third base coaches. So he goes up. Our hitting coach, Richie Hebner, becomes a manager. He calls me in the office and says, hey, I got good news, I got bad news. Which one do you want first? I said, I'll take the bad news. He said, well, the bad news is you're not pitching tonight. He said, the good news is you're pitching against the Braves in two nights. And so, um, you know, that was without question a surreal moment, you know, going back to the hotel and calling as many people as you could and saying, hey, I'm going to make my major league debut in a couple of days. So I fly out the next morning and get to Pittsburgh. It's a little rainy. I get to the ballpark and there's no batting practice and everybody's inside. So you walk into basically a deer in headlights, everybody looking at you like, here's the, here's the young buck, you know, and uh, it's not the most comfortable environment to be in on an older team and, uh, you know, kind of being the, the young kid who walks in. But I was putting on a pair of spikes that night just before the game started. And Jimmy Anderson, who I played with in AAA, he looked at me and he said, hey, what are you putting your spikes on for? And I said, oh, I've been pinch hitting and pinch running a lot in AAA, and he said, nobody's going to be pinch hitting and pinch running in the big leagues, man, put your tennis shoes on. So I put my tennis shoes on, go down to the dugout, Three River Stadium, and I'm just watching the Braves, and I'm looking across, and I'm seeing Tom Glavin and John Smoltz and, and um, Greg Maddox, and it's just, you know, it's surreal, and it's the first time you've been in the stadium where you couldn't see out the backside of the fence, you know, you're inside this cookie-cutter um, AstroTurf field, and it's definitely a little different. And the third inning comes, and I say, Arroyo, on deck. And I said, what? They said, you're going to pinch hit because our, our starting pitcher had gotten roughed up. And I said, I got tennis shoes on. And they said, don't worry about it. There's, good, there's a good, good, uh, good dirt in the box. And I said, okay. So I went out there and I made my major league debut as a hitter against Bruce Chen and hit a full count ground ball back to the mound and got out. And uh, it, it kind of calmed my nerves a bit for the next night when I, when I pitched against the Braves for the first time. Yeah, that's good. You had your first debut as a hitter. I'm sure that's just how you drew it up all, all along. Yeah, exactly. I guess, uh, you know, all of us pitchers, we, we enjoy, um, we enjoy hitting a little bit, especially when you, when you get early on in your career, you think you can get out there and do what you did in high school. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely, definitely a little, a little strange. And I remember reading the paper the next day, it said, I, I don't think that had happened in 70 years of the game that a pitcher had made his debut as a hitter. So I guess it's a, a trivia question about me and my career. Well, a few years later in 2003, the Pirates put you on waivers. You're, of course, claimed by the Red Sox at that point. But how does that work just procedurally? When you're put on waivers, how does that work as a player? Who tells you and, and when do you find out you're getting picked up and all that stuff? The waiver wire is kind of a strange thing where people are going on and off the waiver wire all the time. But in my case, it was it was a, a point at when I had run out of my three options that you had to be sent down to the minor leagues. And so I was at a position where the Pittsburgh Pirates were going to have to keep me at the big league level or offer me up to every other team. And that's what the waiver wire is. And so they had signed Jeff Supon. They wanted a spot on the 40 man roster. And I don't know if they intended for me to get claimed or if they thought that I wouldn't get claimed, but they put me out on irre- irrevocable waiver wire, which means if a t- other team claimed me, they could not pull me back and try to negotiate a trade or do something. So they put me on the irrevocable waiver wire. The Boston Red Sox claimed me. And, uh, you know, Theo Epstein was just taking a shot in the dark and trying to find a diamond in the rough. And, and I, I went into to that spring training uh, in 2003. And early on, 
you know, I got a sense that I was, I was dealing with a different type of an organization. I, I had been with the pirates for so long and everything had always been so secretive and, and very difficult to get any kind of open lines of communication, especially when you're young, they, they tell you less and less, but right away, if Epstein called me into his office uh, about two weeks in the camp and he said, Bronson, you're not going to make the ball club, but I've got to, I've got to hide you in this organization because I want to keep you. So he said, we're going to keep you in big league camp until everybody's rosters are full at the end of the season, at the end of spring training. And then we're going to go ahead and put you out on the waiver wire again. And no one will be able to claim you. And then we, I'm going to start you in AAA and we'll just see what happens. And, and, and it was the first time that I'd really gotten anybody at his stature in an organization to, to kind of just, you know, give you the outlook on, on where they thought your career would go. And it was really refreshing. And, and, and it was kind of a new start for me being in a different organization. It's a different, much different thing, too. You were with the Pirates when the Pirates were, let's face it, really bad. And you go into Boston where the atmosphere is different in terms of crowd, but also it's a winning team. Just tell me about that adjustment. Yeah, that was without question. You know, you didn't realize playing eight years in the, in the minor leagues and in the big leagues with the Pirates, you didn't realize that there was a whole different culture outside of that. Even though we would go on the road and play in different cities and you could feel maybe a different vibe in the stadium, but I had never been to Fenway. And, you know, Fenway was was something that was a whole different animal. And so the first time I walked out on that field, I was walking towards the bullpen in 2003 after I got called up from AAA and, and Kevin Millar was stretching on the line. I remember, and I just, he could tell by my face and I was kind of looking around as I can't believe how many people are already in the stands and how much of a buzz there is, you know, 20 minutes before the game is starting here. I'm used to this kind of very quiet um, Pittsburgh Pirates stadium where there's not a lot of fans. And so he looked at me and he said, you're not, he said, you're not in uh I think he said something like, you're not in Pittsburgh anymore, Cinderella, or something like that. And um, and after that, you know, I realized very quickly that I was dealing with, you know, a lot of history and a lot of passion for a team that had, had, had lost that World Series that my parents were Mets fans of when Buckner misses the ball. And, and uh, I, I didn't realize that history of the game was still so prevalent in New England. And so, you know all through the end of 2003 going into the playoffs and playing the Yankees and losing to them with Aaron Boone hitting the home run, you know, I'm just, that's just my awakening of understanding what the Red Sox meant to, to that um, New England area. And so by the time 2004 came, I was well aware of it and, it and it gave me the ability to kind of enjoy that ride. Well, let's talk about that 2004 team for a little bit. The team, of course, made history. It won the World Series. It made history in the ALCS as well. But let's talk about the ALCS for a little bit because a lot of interesting things happened in that series. Let's start with Game 3. You got hit hard. And the Red Sox fall down 3-0 in the series. They're down 3-0 to the Yankees. At that point, what were you honestly thinking about your chances, the team's chances of winning that series? You know, you watch, you watch a couple of documentaries and you, and you see him batting practice the next day where Kevin Millar is talking and he's very optimistic. But, you know, I think if you take, if you take the mood of the locker room after that 19-8 to beating we took, it was, um, it was pretty quiet. You know, I can remember standing on the, on the steps doing interviews after the game right there in the dugout. And uh, I, I remember saying something like, you know, 19-8, it looks more like a football score and not a baseball game. And, you know, I had started that game and I got beaten up and I had, I had a really good run at the end of 04 where I didn't lose a lot of games for, I don't know, I went maybe 15, 17 starts without losing a game and pitched great against Anaheim in the in the, in the series before. But the Yankees got the better of me that day and knocked me out early. And, and down, we were already down 2-0. So it just really was putting that kind of that, that almost that last nail in the coffin for us. And, and so the next day we came to the park and it was real quiet there. But, 
there was a little bit of stir going on because Gary Sheffield had said uh, something in the paper that he said he didn't say, but his words were twisted, and it was something to the effect of, you know, these guys, because Johnny Damon had coined the team the idiots, and Millar had run with that, and, and, and he, uh, Sheffield had said something about those guys are just a bunch of idiots, basically, you know, they're not they're not good baseball players. They're they're just idiots. And and there was some quote about that, and they had posted it all over the locker room. And I I can remember it was a very quiet day, but it was one of the few things that was a little bit of a spark, you know, and a little bit of a um, some fuel there to get something going. And so by the time we won that first game, you know, we still didn't feel like we were in control of the of the series yet, but it was just enough of cracking the door to let us to, to let us give us some hope to kind of knock it down. On a personal level, when you're pitching in the ALCS, in the biggest rivalry in baseball at the time, and really the, it still is with the Red Sox and the Yankees, you get hit really hard. Does that crush you in a sense? Or, I mean, I know part of your job as an athlete is to be able to bounce back the next time, but after that 19-8 game, when you, pit, when you started the game, what are you feeling afterwards? Yeah, I mean you're you're down you're down in the dumps. It's probably uh, you know you get beat, you get hit hard anytime during the regular season. It's it's uh, it's kind of a it's a kind of a bad day. I, I I've had the ability to shake it a little better than most probably throughout my career, just just purely because of my optimistic mind and 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 refusing to kind of give in to things that we can't change and that Allah's going to let it eat me alive. But you know you take a regular season game, let's say for the Pittsburgh Pirates, that's one level of defeat, and then. You know, you go to a place like Boston where you're a little bit under the microscope and, you know, the newspapers are writing about you more and now you're starting to find yourself, well, I got I got my butt kicked today, so I'm not going to go have dinner with my friends that just came in town because I don't want to sit in the Capitol Grill and watch people just stare at me like this is the guy who can't get the job done. So it did change my life a little bit. And then you, you add a whole nother level of that, a pitching in the playoffs on primetime TV and the biggest rivalry, like you said, maybe in sports. And it was... Uh, you know, it was it, it's a time where you, you feel like you don't feel so sorry for yourself. You just feel bad about letting the fans down and letting the organization down and letting the team down, you know, because whenever you're down two games to none and you're that starting pitcher, you feel like, okay, let let, let me be the guy who can get us back into, into this series and bring it to 2-1. And, you know, just by pure happenstance, I mean, Derek Lowe wasn't in the rotation starting that, that, that playoff run in Anaheim. He wind up pitching in, out of the bullpen and wind up kind of taking my spot in the rotation because he had the hot hand later into that series and, and um, you know, it wind up working out for us. But, but you know, right after that game three, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, you go home at night and you, and you feel like a, like a beat dog. Let's fast forward to game six, which of course became famous because A-Rod knocked the ball out of your glove as you were running to first base. He was originally called safe and then that was later overturned. But when he did that, what was going through your mind at that point? Yeah, that was <laughs> it was a, it was a strange play for one. I mean, just because of the intensity of Yankee Stadium, because it was a larger there was a larger venue than Fenway Park, and obviously we were on the road, and the game was getting really close, and it was later in the game than I had had to deal with as a starting pitcher. So I'm coming out of the bullpen, and a lot of times I was getting those righty righty matchups, which was Jeter, A Rod, and Gary Sheffield, and Alfonso Soriano back when he was on the team in '03. So it was always it was always crunch time when I was in there late in the game like that, and there was always an intense atmosphere. So right away, I already had a runner on base when I came in, 
and Jeter. And so I, I just threw a slow curveball to A-Rod. He hit it right off the end of his bat like a cue ball, and it was spinning violently on the ground. So my first job was to, to just make sure the ball didn't just, like, shoot out of my glove or my hand. And so I, I, I got it, and I was really taking my time to make sure that I grabbed the ball. So when I looked up, I assumed that he one that one that Doug Minkiewicz would be on first base covering, and two that it was going to be a bang bang play because Alex would be hustling down the line. Well, I, I neither one of those were true. I looked up and Doug Minkiewicz is standing right next to me, so immediately I know I've got to make the tag. So when I look up, I assume that Alex is going to be right there on top of me, and he's not. He's just running about three quarter pace. So. I knew I had a lot of time, so I go over to tag him, and I just kind of relaxed because it was just going to be an easy tag. And in that split moment, he decided, I could see in his eyes, that, hey, I'm going to take my shot and knock this thing out of his hand. Maybe maybe this will work. I'm going to do everything I can. So he chops my arm. My glove comes flying off behind him, and I catch it behind him with my right hand. But the ball had shot out, and he had kicked it down the right field line by accident. So the ball's rolling down the right field line and Jeter comes all the way around and scores. And inside of that pandemonium, you know, the only thing I could think of was there's six umpires on the field. We normally have four. Somebody had to have seen how obvious that was. And then all those, you know, those small doubts start creeping in your mind as the longer you're waiting. And as Terry Francona is explaining this to the umpires and you're thinking this can't, can't happen again, right? Like the Red Sox can't have, this bad luck again and then have this play not be overturned. And when it was overturned, it, uh, it, it was a nice sigh of relief that, that, you know, maybe things are working out in our direction and also that um, it made my job easier because now I had Derek Jeter back on first base instead of in scoring position in second. And we were only winning by a run or two and, and Gary Sheffield was at the plate. So it, it, it gave me that one out and also gave me a little bit more relaxed um, of a scene to not have a guy in scoring position. Well, let's jump ahead a little bit. Of course, the Red Sox went on to win the World Series that year versus the Cardinals. I want to talk to you about your season in 2006. In 2006, you were traded. It was after you signed an extension with Boston, and you were traded to the Reds. It was your first year in Cincinnati, and you ended up having the best year of your career, your first year back in the National League after several with Boston. Tell me about 2006, and did you feel like you were doing anything differently? What clicked for you that year? Well, I think it was a culmination of a few things. One, one was, you know, I was, I was, by 2003, I was finding ways to create different pitches. I was, it wasn't different pitches, but I was finding ways to make bigger shapes with my curveball, different shapes with my curveball. And I was, I was just finding other ways to use different arm angles and to be a little bit more creative as I was as a kid and in high school. But when I got into the pirate organization early on, they wanted everyone, because we were young, to kind of just follow their, their, their template of being kind of a standard three-pitch pitcher and not be too creative because they don't tend to give that type of um, leeway to the young guys because they don't think we can pull it off. So by the time I got to Boston, they allowed me to just really be myself, and they didn't really put um, any restrictions on that. So by the time the end of 03 comes, I'm kind of creating some pitches that I hadn't used as a pirate. And so now you trade me back to the National League in 2006 for Willie Mopena, and I find myself being in the National League where a lot of hitters either hadn't seen me a lot in the last few years or had never seen me, and I now had, had created ways to make my, my breaking ball very sweepy to righties, getting more strikeouts, being able to backdoor it to lefties to get in or even back in account when I was behind 2-1. and one. And um, I was just more mature pitcher. I was throwing a pinch harder consistently and just having the confidence to know that I was um, a guy who could play at this level. And so I just got off to a really good start there. 
And once you get off to a, you know, a five and one, a seven and two start, something like that, it's easy to just kind of skate downhill the rest of the year. We also had a bullpen that was very weak at the time and a rotation that really was nothing other than myself and Aaron Harang. And, and because of that, I got the ball on three days rest a few times. It allowed me to pitch 240 innings that year. And, and that's why you see me at, you know, that's my biggest strikeout year, my lowest ERA year. It was kind of a culmination of, of all of that. You had a stretch there starting in 2006 and basically going all the way through 2013 where you pitched at least 200 innings. You're not a guy that's throwing 98 miles an hour, and you're not, at that point in 2013, 2014, you're not 24 years old either. And so many of the things that are tied or linked to Tommy John surgery are velocity, prior injury history, and youth. And you didn't have any of those guys. I feel like in 2014, if we were to make a list of the most unlikely guys to need Tommy John surgery, you would have been at the top of that list. Tell me what you were thinking when you found out you needed that surgery. Were you shocked? Yeah, I was a little shocked. I mean, I knew something was going on in my arm because I'd been pitching for a while with it ridiculously swelling in between starts and not being able to play catch or throw a bullpen. But I, I was I thought my flex mass was probably really irritated. I didn't think that my ligament was broke. But, you know, I, I think I would have been probably, like you said, tops on the list for a guy who wouldn't have been hurt in 2014. I mean, it's what I made my whole career out of is being healthy and taking the ball every fifth day for almost 20 years. And But, you know, that being said, I also had thrown, you know, 3,500 innings as a professional because a lot of people don't know that, you know, I got 84 wins in the minor leagues. I've got 1,100 innings at the minor league level. Like, that is that is more than any uh, number one starter in major in, in the major leagues. So these guys get to the big leagues so fast. A lot of times they have three, four hundred innings at the minor leagues, and that's it. Well, I was down there grinding for years, and so I put in just a lot of wear and tear on my arm. And even though I wasn't a hard thrower and also didn't throw max effort, you know, after twenty years, I guess my body just had had enough in certain places, and my my rotator cuff was torn in my shoulder the whole season of fourteen, and I kept pitching on that. So I threw fourteen starts with torn rotator cuff, and then my ligament went. After I beat the Nationals, I threw a complete game against Strasburg, and I was feeling fantastic. But the next day, my elbow was bothering me, and I continued to pitch six more times like that with an elbow that was just deteriorating at a rate that was just ridiculous. By the end, I was throwing 75 to 80 miles an hour. I beat Josh Beckett in, in Dodger Stadium and rarely threw a pitch over 80 miles an hour. And, and um, you know, I, I just I kind of ran it as long as I could. It was, it was part of what made me who I am, and, and maybe I, I put myself behind the eight ball a little bit and that's why I think it might have taken me two and a half years to come back from these surgeries because I, I did push my body to the limit when it was, was damaged. But um, when the doctor looked at the scans and he said I had no ligament in my elbow, I was, I was definitely, I mean, I wasn't shocked completely because I knew something was going on, but I just, I just didn't think I threw hard enough in, to, to break it. And also I had heard stories in the past where other guys would always lose control when the ligament was gone and I was still throwing 75 to 80, but I was beating people with my command. And so I just didn't think that it was, um, that drastic of damage in there, but it, it wind up being that. And I, and I guess for a couple of hours after he told me that I was kind of contemplating whether I was going to retire or not, because I thought I'm 37 and you know, it's going to take me a couple of years to come back. And do I really want to grind through that this late in the stage of my career? But, you know, um, quickly you kind of come around to realizing that, you know, I've never been hurt before, and, and I, had to, I had to give it a shot. I had to try to fix the thing and see if I could come back from it. So when you're pitching with a torn rotator cuff and with the busted elbow at that point, what are the team doctors saying? Are you reporting any of this to the doctors? Did they know how bad you were hurt when you were pitching? 
Yeah, the, the Diamondbacks knew it only because I wasn't able to throw my bullpens in between starts, and they knew how bad I was swelling. I've always been really open with the organization since I left the Pirates, just because I felt like it's a much better way. You know, baseball is a strange; they do this strange dance where the the front office and the coaching staff is very secretive about the moves they want to make with players, and players are very secretive about how much they want to tell the medical staff about how they're hurt because in fear of being shut down, players don't want to be shut down. So you don't ever want to walk into a training room and say, you know, my shoulder's a little tight and then miss your start for the next month because they're worried about you. And so guys usually just shy away from it where I kind of took it from the, from the opposite end of the spectrum, which was I'm going to go in and tell them, you know, exactly what's going on all the time. And they're going to realize that I can pitch every fifth day, making these minor tweaks or give me a little of this or a little of that. And we're going to make it through this. And that's how I felt like the game should have been played. And so um, by the time I got to 2014 with the Diamondbacks, I had already established that um, kind of honesty throughout, you know, the, the teams I played for. And I think that, 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 uh, that reputation kind of um, preceded me. So, uh, they they would call me in the office and they they had a meeting with me. I beat the Houston Astros um, in Houston and and they called me in the office and they said, hey man, you know you, uh, we know you're really beat up and we'd love to shut you down um, because we're we're in fear that you're probably going to just be completely broke here soon. And I and I I basically said, look guys, I, this was the general manager and the pitching coach and the manager and everyone. And I and I just said, look, I'm 37 years old. I just signed a two year deal with you guys for 23 million dollars plus. I said, I, I feel like it's my duty to give you guys the best that I got. I said, if I break, I break. I'm not worried about it. If I have to throw the ball 75 miles an hour, I'll still continue to win games. It makes no difference to me. And I'm going to ride this thing until it dies. And uh, they said, okay, well, go ahead. And and that's what I did. I'm curious, as your career, you started in majors in 2000, and obviously now we've seen the analytic revolution. I'm curious how different scouting reports are now from when you first started in 2000 how much more information you're getting, and how you can use them to your success. Yeah, there's definitely there's, there's much more information out there. I, I personally don't use uh, a ton of it. I mean, I'm not using, like, obviously all, all the all the stuff we have on pitchers, like spin rates and, and stuff like that, and I'm not really worried about uh, exit velocity off the bat and those types of things. But we are getting the opportunity to never miss a game. We don't have to rely now on a on an advanced scout who is – two weeks ahead of this major league team and their schedule in scouting the San Francisco Giants and the, and the Philadelphia Phillies uh, to give us our reports. We can just go and watch the games live right there on the computer. We have the ability to see all of the games and you can go watch these at-bats against these guys you're going to pitch against. And so it's definitely um, an e- easier access. It gives us much, much more information. And, um, you know, I think as far as as far as the, the the stuff that like war and all the things that love that players love to evaluate um, other players on, or front offices evaluate players and the media evaluates players based on all these different statistics. Um, a lot of them don't come in play for me because when I'm reading a hitter, I'm having to I'm having to figure out how I'm going to beat them with my skill set, and my skill set is very unique to the game, and so I I a lot of times can't always use everyone else's opinion of certain hitters or those scouting reports because I'm kind of kind of going to attack them in a, in a different way with a much softer approach with more breaking balls with pitching behind in the count much differently. So um, it, it definitely is more information. It definitely helps a lot, but there's a lot of it out there that I can't use. You're in camp with the Reds this year, trying to make it back. You haven't pitched in the majors since 2014. At this point, if you don't make the major league rotation, if you don't break camp with the team, are you looking at retirement, or would you head down to the minors? Yeah, if I don't, if I can't break with this club, 
I can break with anybody's club, you know. Um, we've got a super, super young team here. And, um, you know, there's a lot of guys who have no, no service to the major leagues, and, and they probably need a full year at AAA to really be ready for next year. Some of them are going to get pushed to the big league level this year, possibly even, you know, to start the season, and some of them are going to um, make their way up sometime during the year. But, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a camp that um, can use me around the clubhouse, can use me around these young guys, and, and I, they've been pleasantly surprised that I was throwing 84, 87, I look like my old self, a free and easy arm, I'm throwing strikes, and I don't see any reason why I wouldn't make this club if I if I um, am healthy here after these next two starts. But that being said, if they if they surprise me and said, "Listen, Bronson, you know you've had a pretty good camp and and, and we think you can still pitch the major league level, but we got five young guys that we want to go with and really don't want you um, to be here. We'd love for you to go to AAA." Um, it's probably not going to happen. You know, I, I think I don't think I need to prove that I can get big league hitters out because I've gotten big league hitters out. In a time when I had a torn rotator cuff and a broken elbow, I went three and two with a two something ERA. So, um, for anybody to tell me that, you know, we needed to go down and work on some things would be ridiculous. And and then if they just wanted me to go down to be an insurance policy, you know, the travel in the minor leagues is much harder, and the pay's not as good. And I'm 40 years old. You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to muster it up at the big league level, much less to do that um, down in the farm system. So, you know, if that was their if that was their move, I would have two moves. One was I could either retire. And the second one would be I could just continue to stay in shape and see if another big league team needed uh, some help with a guy who got hurt, uh, possibly in maybe the first two months of the season. But, uh, you know, I, I feel confident that I'll be on this ball club if I, if I just uh, stay healthy here for the next two starts. Lastly, knowing what you know now about your career, would you do anything differently in hindsight? Uh, I think um, there isn't a whole lot. I, I, rarely, I rarely look back. You know, my agent says all the time, he says, Bronson, the one thing that I love about you is that when you walk out of the locker room, whether you've thrown a no-hitter or you gave up 10 runs in, in an inning and a third to the Blue Jays, I can't tell the difference. You never you never bring it home. You, you're the same guy all the time. And um, I, tend to, I tend to leave the past the past, you know, because I, I feel like I prepare myself as best I can. I do the best I can all the time and I never I never second guess the three two curveball when I walk the guy with bases loaded. I just don't. I don't say I should have thrown a fastball and uh so if I think about my entire career, I honestly can't pinpoint one thing that I would have changed. The only thing I that I that I wish I could have changed for for the perception of me to other people was I, I wish the pirates would have given me the ball every fifth day um around two thousand instead of bouncing me up and down from AAA to the big leagues and into the bullpen from 2000 through 2002. Because I feel like the reason I have 84 minor league wins is because I was down there too long. You know, if you look at anybody who's got over a hundred wins at the major league level and, 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 and on up, you look at a guy like Derek Lowe, 175 wins, you know, these guys only have 30 or 40 minor league wins because they weren't down there that long. And I feel like I probably should have 30 less minor league wins and 30 more big league wins. And, and uh, I, I think that's probably the only thing I would have changed. You've been listening to Bronson Arroyo. Bronson is in Reds camp, hoping to make their starting rotation this year. Bronson, good luck with that and with everything going forward. Thanks for the extended time and joining the podcast today. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you.